0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Enjoy food the way nature intended. Alaska seafood, wild, natural, and sustainable. For more information, visit wildalaskaseafood.com.
2: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network
3: meant to be eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Coral Lee. Joining me today is Rupa Bhattacharya, the newly appointed editor-in-chief of Munchies, Vice's food website and digital food channel. We'll be talking about her role, how Munchies has changed, the power and responsibility of food media, and why non-foodies should care too. Welcome, Rupa. Thank you. Nice you. So I'm going to start um, the show by doing something new. Um, I've never had like a, an intro question, really, but what I'm going to start doing is asking you, where are you from? Um, I feel like that's a very incendiary question, and I want to kind of change how we think about it. So yeah, where are you from, and how has it brought you to where you are today?
4: Uh, so I literally, I have a six year old and I literally just explained to him why it's messed up to ask people where mm. they're from. Um, I'm from New York, which is my answer. Um, I am. I was actually literally just having this conversation this morning with a six year old about where I'm from. Uh, I'm from New York. If you ask me again, I'm from Michigan. And if you ask me a third time, huh. it's are you asking me why I'm not white? Mm. Um, but uh, because I understand that you are not asking me that question with any hostility, um, Basically, I'm from here. I am from... Um, and w- what I... This is a really hard question. Um, basically, I'm a New Yorker. I've been a New Yorker since I was six, which does not count me as a real New Yorker, but I still stand by it. Um, and I guess my like life and my goals have always been to um, make the world more understandable, make everybody, like, help people understand each other and and... Uh, Better through the medium of food.
3: Mm -hmm. So when you were explaining it to your six-year-old, why did you, or how did you tell him why it's not okay? Why is it not okay?
4: Well, I said the thing that I love the most about New York is that anybody who looks like anything can be from New York, Hmm. right? Um, And, you know, we live in a segregated neighborhood, um, which is weird. Um, And so we talk about it quite a bit. And I was like, oh, you have to be extra nice to people of color here because, you know, Hmm. we live in a segregated neighborhood. And uh, so you know and, and he was like oh that person may might not have been from New York you're like "I'm almost like great right. they might not have been my favorite thing about New York is that everybody can be from New York mm-hmm. I'm from New York you're from New York um it is something that I you know feel strongly about because obviously I'm 36 years old and have spent a lot of my life being asked where I'm from um and you know the answer is here
3: mm-hmm. and so to go further um where are you from and where are you going
4: Gosh, that's a much harder question. I have no <laughs> idea. Absolutely no idea. Where am I going? Um, well, um, I am... I have no idea where I'm going. I am trying to... I just got this new job. Um, I just became editor chief at Mungie's, which has been amazing. Um, I, it's been about six months, and it's been phenomenal. Um, but where am I going with it is that I am trying to bring voice to the voiceless or the undervoiced. I'm trying to bring voice to the undervalued. Um, and I'm hoping that, and I'm watching it happen in real time. I'm watching people be influenced and convinced by the value of what we're doing. So that's been really cool. Um, what I'm really hoping is that this brings people to an understanding that there's value in the voiceless and there's value in the undervalued. Mm-hmm.
3: So yeah, let's talk about your role. What's like a day in the life as someone who's a, like basically a key decider in what we consume in food media?
4: A day in the life, man, it's hard. Like there's just, there's so much to do and there's so many things to do and there's so there's there are so many stories to tell. So like we have teams in eleven countries right now, which has been super cool. I get to work with people all over the world and like figure out what they're what they're excited about. Um, I was just texting with our Danish editor because Denmark's playing right now. <laughs> um, and he apparently ran into Rosette at the game, watching the game at a bar, because of course he did. Um, <laughs> shocking. Um, but uh, basically, like, we spend the day trying to figure out, you know, whose stories are being told, what's happening in the world, and how do we tell those stories? Who are the voices? Who do we want to put our support behind? When you have the power of a media organization behind you, you realize that your role is so curatorial, right? Like, every decision you make plays out in who gets attention, who gets shine, who gets a book deal, who gets funding, who can point to an article that says, and says, oh, this person's getting getting attention, they must be legit. Um, and when you realize what power that you have to both make and break people's careers, I mean, we don't do negative articles. I'm not sitting here trying to, like, ruin somebody's <laughs> life for, like, whatever it is that they're doing. Um, but, you know, the absence of, of media is also a form of media, right? And so, you know, when you choose when, when you choose what you write about, and, when you, and everything is zero sum, right? If you, you write about one thing, you're not writing about another. So everything you do is essentially curatorial. And what does that mean? And how does that, how does that reflect the world that you want to see? So basically, I spent a lot of time thinking about the world that I want to see and figuring out how to make that real.
5: Mm-hmm.
3: And so you said you have editors in 11 countries, yes. right? And so, how much of Munchies is, because it feels like a lot of the content is American focused. So, how, much, how do you decide which, even not only what chefs get? Um, focus, but which countries get focus, or, yeah.
4: So we have, so basically, so we have editorial teams all over the world, um, and so I will communicate with all of them. If I'm just commissioning a story in, you know, in the South Pacific, I'll speak to our Australian head of content, our Indonesian head of content, I'll speak to a bunch of people, make sure that, A, they're not planning on covering it, B, the perspective Mm -hmm. is relevant, C, like, that, essentially that it, that it makes sense for us to do um, if they want to have the first crack at it they're also welcome to um, so I get a lot of pitches because I'm Indian and my name has been floating around in a lot of uh, both Indian writer groups as well as Groups for uh, people of color in the the, the industry. Um, I got a lot of pitches from from India, and we just launched in India. Vice just launched in India, so not Munchies, but Vice. But they are running uh, food content, and it's been really interesting working with Sonal, who's our Indian editor, our Indian head of content, rather, um, to, just to see what you know stories she thinks are too local, what's getting overcovered there versus being undercovered here. And there's a tricky there's a tricky angle to it, right? Like, so um, there are stories, for example, that like, let's say. You know, Italy wants to cover the story of a chef, a Neapolitan, a famous Neapolitan chef, making a healthy pizza, which was a couple months ago this happened, and people hated it. It was like terrible. Like <laughs> so made of like sunflower seeds and bark or something, and nobody <laughs> wanted to eat it. And you know, the Neapolitans have what they're like if you try and mess with their pizza. Like we're in Roberto's right now, and I'm sure like several Italians would have several heart attacks if they <laughs> saw this sort of pizza. There's up. like
3: honey and stuff on yeah, it. Yeah, exactly.
4: Right. <laughs> and so like you know, there was an outrage. It was a super outrage. And I go, I wake up in the morning, and they're six hours ahead, so I like look, and I see this article is like booming. And so I asked, we have a translation team who I work with and they're awesome. We have a global team and they're phenomenal and a team of translators. And so I, I talked to our, the person who handles the translations for me and I was like, should we should we flip this? Should we you know, run this article? And you know, I looked at it and then I looked at it again. Um, and it's cool because like I have worked in food media for a really long time and I speak a lot of languages and I've never gotten to use any of them. <laughs> and so this is super dope for me, right? So I can just be like, oh, let me read this thing. Um, and so I read the article and the article's very like, it's great. Right, and I'm glad that it came from um, you know our Italian team, but the way that the article was written was that it was very clearly written for an Italian audience, right? Who knows the chef already? Who knows about the controversy? So, like, if we had covered it in the U.S., it would have had to would have required like two paragraphs of, of introductory information at least to just contextualize it for the authors. Slash, it would have had to be written under a different like, with a different approach. Like, it would have been much less, oh, so-and-so's back in this bullshit versus, like, which is what the Italian tone was because I think they're used to this guy's shenanigans at this Mm -hmm. point. Whereas us, it's, like, you know, Italian, uh, you know, Neapolitan celebrity chef so-and-so has been on this kick, right? But it's so much establishing context to figure out. And, again, our audience is young. Our audience is young and our audience isn't rich. Um, And so, like, they're not going to Michelin star restaurants. They're not going to, like, you know, they're not going all over the world being, like, oh, let me try this restaurant in San Sebastian, right? Like, that's not mm-hmm. our, our audience at all. And so, like, frequently the first time they hear about things is from us. And so what do they need in terms of context in order to make that real? So, like, I don't know if that answered your question, but essentially, like, in order for a story to pop for us or to do well for us, it has to have, like, these undercurrent threads that you can relate to being a young person anywhere in the world. Um, the it's Italians, the stories that I translate from our international teams... Still have that undercurrent of universality, or they're about something so remarkable that, like, they make sense anyway. Even if you're never going to get to Copenhagen and try the, like, shawarma made that Noma's making out of celery root, several layers of celery root spread very thin and spread, like, and and sliced very thin and layered with, like, truffle emulsion or something in between each layer, right? Like, it's basically Alpastor slash shawarma made out of celery root. Like, that's fascinating. I mean, you know. I roll my eyes as much as anybody else, but that's still fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, even if it's not universal, even if you're never going to get to Copenhagen and buy the vegetarian tasting menu at Noma, it's still dope. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's sort of how I decide what gets, what international stories get play. Mm-hmm. If we don't have a team in the country, um, then uh, interestingly, because we have the largest inter- editorial team, if we don't have a team in the in the country at a given moment... Um, We'll cover it from the states, and people can flip if they see fit. Hmm. So I'll get pitches frequently from you know our French editor will send over pitches from French journalists who are based in somewhere else, and uh, send those over because they're they're not relevant to much France, but they would be relevant to much the U.S. And then if you want, you can flip them. Um, if that answers. Your yeah, no, US. I'm
3: very invested in this. Uh, pizza story though so in this one yeah. instance would you then deem it worthy to give the American audience a context or is it just kind of like this is never going to make sense it's not going to hit the same way that it did the Italian audience and so we're just
4: going to let it go um, so in this particular situation it's interesting like it would have made more sense we did flip the story but it would have made more sense to have it written from the U.S. point of view mm-hmm. and run it by Roberta our, our Italian editor for um, for approval okay Um generally like more more frequently than not flipping is fine but with a situation like this where it's he's so well known in italy and so not known in the states like there's just there's just so like the entire tone of the article has to be different
5: okay yeah
3: so um you were talking about how what you do or what munchies is trying to do is basically cultural writing with food as a lens and so has this always been the way for Munchies or how has it changed over time? Um, It's definitely
4: always been the way. The founding editor is a woman named Helen Holliman who's incredible and she basically pioneered this idea of of using food. I mean um, many people use food as a lens for cultural reporting but she did a really good job convincing both vice and young people and people in general that this was a valid and legitimate way to approach food writing, that it's not, you know, 15 delicious dishes for blah, 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 right? Um, uh, It can be meaningful and relevant and 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 a a way to open the door into a community that you might not otherwise have understood. Um, But yeah, so basically when I took over... um, I'm basically just doing more of the same. I'm trying to make it be, the pillars, the way that I see them of our coverage are culture, identity, utility, and what the fuck. Um, uh, it's official, it's like, it says it in PowerPoint decks and stuff, like it says what the fuck, it's like, great. Um, my ability to not swear uh, is really limited. Um, so it's great, it's really handy. Uh, so, um, So culture essentially being like why, how who we are affects what we eat Identity is a sort of flip side of that. I mean, it's another side of that, which is how what we eat affects who we are. Hmm. Um, Utility is all of the things that people come to, uh, people come to Vice to learn how to be cool in many ways. Um, And so it's like, you know, how to cook, how to eat, where to eat. You know, that sort of stuff is all utility. Um, Recipes is a huge part of that as well. Um, And what the fuck is everything else is all the things that, like, we are kind of known for, like the fights in fast food restaurants and the stories about the obscure winner of the guy who won the McDonald's flexitis competition and, like, you know, uh, long-form meditations on the sex lives of fictional characters that represented fast food restaurants at some point or another. You know, like, things like that is what is the 25% of weird that people come to us for. Um and so yeah, it's a combination of those things. But one of the things that I really like and people have told me is that um people come to us because they like to write. They like to be they like to write in their own voices and they like to have their own voices heard um without mediating context. Um so I don't necessarily write with a particular audience in mind, and I definitely don't write with the kind of audience in mind that's the same audience as like um many other food publications. So I'm not explaining things to people necessarily. Um, it's not this spice is blah, 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 which you might know from your experience, your one experience at an Indian restaurant in blah, blah. You know what I mean? Like I'm not doing that. I'm not assuming that the audience doesn't know about X, Y, or Z, um, because the audience might be Mexican. The audience might be Indian. My audience can be from anywhere, um, from anywhere. My audience can be of any origin, and any descent and be familiar with have any kind of cultural capital and experience. but also I think that young people don't necessarily expect it to be explained to in the same way that many older audiences do. Hmm. Um, they have the same, they're, they can, if they need to know a word, they can look it up on the same internet that they're reading us on, right? And they don't, I think younger audiences tend to not be as sort of in need of handholding necessarily. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe that's unfair, but like in my experience, nobody's writing in being like, I never heard of this ingredient, how dare you write about it? Whereas I used to get emails like that all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, every time uh, I used to be the person who if you emailed the Food Network help desk for um, advice you'd get um, you, I would r- get wait, that wait
3: what's the most bizarre question you've gotten
4: oh my gosh I got great questions <laughs> um, the most bizarre question was a woman uh, I'm fairly certain was not a real question I was fairly certain it was actually like a pudding fetishist um, <laughs> <laughs> writing me asking me like every so often I get emails from this guy who's described himself as pudding, and he lives in pudding Guam
5: <laughs> <laughs> and
4: um, actually I actually haven't thought about this in a really long time um, but yeah I used to get these pudding emails um But besides the putting emails, like, you could always tell when a certain episode of Alton Brown aired because he had put Razal Hanout in, Mm. or rather, no, he had put Grains of Paradise in, like, his cheesecake. It was something really random. He put Grains of Paradise in something, and every time that episode aired, I'd 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 come in on Monday to, like, 70 emails being like, what are Grains of Paradise? And, like, you found the email address. Right. Like...
3: Why didn't you look it up?
4: Right. Like, like, the amount of steps it would take to get to that (laughs) email address, it's like, it wasn't easy to find. Like, definitely. Um, So... I definitely don't get that now. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not getting DM'd on Instagram being like, yo, you know, what's a bone marrow? <laughs> right? Like that's not happening, um, which is cool. Yeah. You know, um, it's also really interesting. Um, we, I know we were talking earlier before we got on air about um, how what Instagram's role in food slash social media's role in food. Mm-hmm. And I think it's fascinating. I mean, I think it's super fascinating. I love the fact that, I mean, it's interesting. It's a double-edged sword, right? Because while food, uh, Instagram and social media have fully democratized Um, what gets to be relevant and what gets to be legitimate in the world of food. It's also sort of devalued the sort of expertise. Um, And so how do you handle that, right? Like it means that like, what's amazing is that so many different types of food get to be shown in a world that used to only focus on a couple, right? Like, Mm -hmm. And so that's really interesting. There are foods that like, I don't know, I definitely remember pitching like raclette you know, years ago uh, and being told that it was too obscure. And now because Instagram is so obsessed with dripping cheese, like, raclette's everywhere, right? Like, I've pitched raclette for something, you know, at the Food Network, and it was like, oh, no, no, nobody wants that. Like, nobody knows what that is. Like, that's weird. Um, and now raclette's on literally everything. It's all, like, my th- every third Instagram picture and my sponsor my suggested feed is is, is cheese being... <laughs> and that might be a reflection of me and my values, to be fair. But, you know, like, there's hella raclette on the internet now. And I think raclette, like, the mainstreaming of something like raclette, which is, again, like, it's not that obscure. It's a cheese that melts. And, like, it's not... it's a fairly easy thing to relate to Mm -hmm. but the idea that like this sort of foreign European thing is all of a sudden like mainstream in a very particular definition of what a very particular very narrow definition of what mainstream means is fascinating Mm -hmm. Um, it's also really interesting because like who has access now, right? Who gets into these these positions? Who has access to anything? I mean, I got my first job because my old roommate left the paper New York Times on our couch, and there was an ad in the paper New York Times for a wine magazine that was hiring a tastings assistant and I faxed my resume in because that's how old I am I faxed my resume in and like got it because when I like I came in I interviewed and like there was a tasting and I was like they asked me what what I thought it was and you know I was like close to right and it was I mean I got this job out of genuinely because I faxed a resume in from the you know paper New York Times which like Who has a paper in New York Times? I mean, who had a paper in New York Times at the time, right? Like, you have to be in a very particular demographic Mm. to be getting the paper in New York Times. And now you don't necessarily need to be in a particular demographic to see a job listing. You know, like, um, you can be be anywhere and from anywhere. And again, there's still a tremendous amount of cultural capital required in order to be in whatever position that you, you want to be in. But it's really fascinating how the internet has flattened the landscape of who gets to be seen and whose food gets to be seen.
3: Yeah, I would counter that, though, because I feel like it also depends on who you follow, right? Yes. Because I would not see anything on recl Like, my feed has just a ton of pickles on it. And so it also, while it is democratizing, it also... I am being shaped by what the people I follow are interested in, and so how are you
4: being radicalized by, into pickles? Is I this think like YouTube so. when you watch like one thing on YouTube I, I and it, super... all of a sudden you're watching like conspiracy theories? <laughs>
3: yeah, all my um, uh, relate or what is it suggested videos are like ferment this, ferment this. Oh, for real? Oh, yeah, that's
4: fascinating. See, I have to watch. I keep a good number of those like kind of cheesy videos in my feed because I need to know about what they're doing for like business reasons. Uh-huh. And so there's a non-zero, and I also like you know full disclosure um definitely when i am stressed out um get stoned and watch uh, cake decorating so um this wait wait what do you cake at? decorating they're so that? soothing oh my gosh the woman at the turntable and it's just like slowly combing icing like they're basically what? they're ASMR videos but i hate ASMR because i don't like the sound of people right. chewing um but they're like <laughs> <laughs> they're like soundless ASMR videos okay. of people just decorating cakes really beautifully huh and they're on turntables. So you're just watching things be smoothed really carefully Whoa, and beautifully. It's so beautiful. And then there's always a payoff, even though you never eat these cakes. Mm-hmm. You never eat these cakes. These cakes look horrific to eat. They look like they're made primarily out of like sponge. They're not good. Right. They're probably the, the vast majority of the cake base is like, I mean, I'm sure it's box mix because that stuff is stable. Um, but it's so beautiful. But you get the payoff. You get the beautiful payoff. They slice a piece. The piece is always much too large. The cakes are always much too tall. Nobody ever wants to eat that cake. But I will watch the fuck out of those cakes being decorated. Um, so my Instagram feed is all of those videos.
3: Yeah, I'm gonna push on that though. What is the payoff? What do you get when you're watching? Those well, videos? so the,
4: the the calculated payoff is the slice of cake, right? That's I mean, the, there's a there's, mm-hmm. a there's a there's a method to these videos right? Like you want that visceral moment of joy that you get. <laughs> and theoretically, and then usually that comes. And I made these videos. I made these videos for Facebook, network Snapchat for years. Um, there's a visceral moment that you're trying to like get to, there's like a payoff moment. Um, But, like, with the decorating videos, they're just, like, so... I mean, it's the same thing as soap carving, which is such a weird phenomenon that I don't fully understand, and it's also kind of gross to me. Like, (laughs) I mean, they're compelling. (laughs) Not that I won't watch them when they're on my feed, but, like, why are you carving this soap bar? Mm -hmm. Like, at least I understand with, like... With like a, a cake, like the end goal is cake, and that's a reasonable end goal that I can that I can you know morally understand. <laughs> Whereas soap carving, have you seen soap carving? You know what I'm talking about. Would you
3: not use a carved soap bar? Well have you I seen soap carving? No, like, I no know, okay, okay. So
4: <laughs> soap carving is really weird. They take a bar of soap uh-huh. and they essentially like score it like with a with a crosshatch pattern essentially. Oh, um, like you know like a quarter inch deep or so, uh, fairly narrow thin crosshatch pattern where it's scored and then they take a, a knife and cut parallel to it and then just like slice off the little bit squares of, of soap it's very what? weird no it's basically just wasting soap <laughs> like, like, just, like there's no reason for it like, you
3: should wait that should be a story where does
4: the soap what, what, go what like, happens what? to the soap and soap <laughs> no for real like what, where does it go um <laughs> So I get it with, with cake more than I get it with soap, for example, but I'm still, I mean, please, I'm also getting soap carving videos because Instagram knows me. Again, I'm being radicalized into being much more chill, um, <laughs> which is probably for the best for everybody involved. Um, it's fine. Um, but, yeah, no, so um, that is really interesting that you are getting primarily fermentation, and I am getting, again, because I follow, I mean, I follow a number of the mainstream um food sites for just to make, just so I know that people, what people are doing and to mm-hmm. know what people like what's going on um, and what the competition's up to. Um, that's really interesting. I, and so, and the, the people I know who are my friends aren't usually posting videos on themselves cooking. Like my, I have an Instagram and it's most pictures of my kid. Um, like I, nobody wants to see my food. I mean, I feel <laughs> like they might, I don't know. I, I get like my, my, my engagement is very much more like I, my engagement is much higher when I post pictures of not food. Mm. Um, so uh, my one person experiment is that nobody, nobody cares about my food. Um, <laughs> but there are so many Instagrams that are so many pictures of food and, mm-hmm. and they're not as good as, you know, they're not very, um, I don't know. Maybe I should. I should have. I have been debating a second Instagram, like a, like a, like my teenage nieces have. Finstas, does, um, where they post pictures of themselves making faces and like not with makeup on. <laughs> Yours
3: will be so, like soap carving. Mine will just be.
4: <laughs> Mine will actually just be food. Like, <laughs> I should actually have a food Instagram. Yeah.
3: Okay, we're gonna take a break. That was that was amazing. Um, we'll be back after a short break. <laughs>
2: Think
1: about what it takes to swim a coastline longer than the entire eastern seaboard and leap tall waterfalls in a single bound. What does it take to survive 200 feet deep in icy saltwater? What would you be made of? Wild Alaska seafood is made of tight muscle mass, long chain omega-3s, and incredible micronutrients. It matters where your food comes from experience the flavor of the fittest in every bite, and enjoy food the way nature intended. Alaska Seafood, wild, natural, and sustainable. Ask for Alaska on the menu, grocery store, or smart device. For more information, visit wildalaskaseafood.com.
3: I'm Moxie Rosenblum. My dad, Harry Rosenblum, hosts Feast Your Ears on Heritage Radio Network. Right now, HRN is having a summer membership drive. Becoming a member is so easy, and you'll help support shows like my dad's. You can sign up for a one-time donation or become a monthly sustaining member by visiting heritageradionetwork.org/donate. Let's keep food radio on the airwaves
5: this
4: summer. <laughs> It's hard to focus.
3: <laughs> and we're back. This is meant to be eaten. Uh, we were just talking about um, basically soap carving. Um, so <laughs> let's talk about how food media has changed. So we were just talking about those like ASMR cake videos and um, versus recipes. And so how and why would people use recipes? And how and why would people consume these cake videos? Like, what is the difference?
4: Well, I feel like, you know, a thing that has really changed, I don't it, it changes hard. It's hard to say. I think that there's definitely much more attention being paid globally or outside of the, sort of the narrow scope of food media to an idea that food media is not necessarily entirely utilitarian, right? So, in addition to like food videos, like the top-down style videos, um, of which I've been told the click-through rate on to the recipes, the actual recipes of these videos, is something like, for most media outlets, um, around, at tops, about 2%. So people are watching these videos on Instagram, they're watching these videos elsewhere, they are almost never clicking through to the video, to the recipe, rather. And if they are even clicking to the recipe, who knows if they're making it. Um, so I do wonder how much of these videos, um, like... So they're, they're essentially consumptive and not – they're passive consumption and not utilitarian, but I also wonder how, new, how much cooking is inspired by um, – right? Like if you see somebody make, you know, X, Y, Z, like this, here's a stuffed shell casserole dish, whatever, um, you might want to watch somebody pipe those shells over and over and over again. You might make it from the recipe you might not make it from the recipe you might think oh hey I haven't made chef styles in a while are great let me make those you know what I mean like mm-hmm. I can't tell how much of that like I don't think the click through rate necessarily well it's really easy to grab that number and be like oh nobody's po- clicking on this thing that means nobody's making the recipe I do wonder how much cooking has been influenced by um, these videos and I also wonder like there's you know there are some dishes that are just genuinely ugly and those dishes don't get that much love anymore. Right. Like, um, I made it, there's this pie, uh, back in the day, Paul Grimes developed it for gourmet, like, no, 20 years ago. Um, maybe 20 years ago. It was a while ago anyway. It's a, it's a cheddar crusted pie. The, the dough itself is super short. It's like 60% cheddar cheese by weight. Mm-hmm. So it's, I mean, it's super short. It's super crumbly. Uh, it's ugly as hell. When it comes out, it looks like it has like several skin diseases because the cheese is just like <laughs> bubbling and warding and, and fr- you know, it's doing all these things. It's like sort of scabby and wordy and ugly. It's also delicious. It mm-hmm. is such a good pie. Um, and I made it recently. I made it last year and I was like, oh, yeah, why haven't I made this in so long? And why haven't I made this in so long? It's because I'm going to spend Three hours making pie and have it look like that, and mm. be bummed that I don't have a shot for Instagram. I mean, I don't care again. I was just, I, my Instagram is literally just pictures of my child, so like, I wasn't gonna put on my Instagram anyway. But like, um, yeah, it's, it's, you wonder about the dishes like that. Like, what happens to the ugly food? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. It's really interesting. Like, I think uh, people, there was that, there was a really interesting article recently in Taste about um, the millennial dinner party flex and how that's a thing.
3: Wait, can you, what is that? The millennial
4: dinner party flex is the fact that fundamentally like millennials aren't going to restaurants, but what they are doing is they're making really fancy dinners in their houses and posting pictures of them on Instagram. Um, Okay. Right? Like, yes. I mean, like, (laughs) no, also true, you know, also not untrue. Um, And there are, I mean, obviously tons and tons of factors for why that is. Um, But, uh, you know, I don't know that that apple pie has a place Hmm. in that in that dinner party flex, like, would you flex this ugly apple pie? Uh, Like Mm -hmm. I might not. I mean, I, I probably would because like, whatever, but like, (laughs) but like I completely understand why you wouldn't, right? I completely understand why you'd want something prettier, why you'd want something that like looks more like, you know, that you're, I don't know. I mean, I definitely have friends who don't cook at all, who got super into like making these elaborate pies with these braided doughs. And like the amount of time you would spend keeping that dough cold slash manipulating that dough slash braiding it into 17 different ways like that's a lot of handling you're Mm -hmm. touching that dough a lot so what are you doing that it's not tough as hell when you bite into it right how are you keeping it cold like the person i'm thinking of is a friend of mine i mean she lives texas like you live in texas you're baking pie you're baking a pie that you've clearly had to touch the hell out of in Mm -hmm. order to make it look like that it can't possibly taste that good but like is that the point
3: looks good right exactly and so like
4: that's really interesting like i don't know um, and I don't know what to make of that. I don't know what to, like, I think there's still a huge market for food that tastes good and is delicious. But I think that it still has to bring it um, aesthetically. And there are some dishes that just are never going to quite, like, you don't see gumbo anymore. Mm-hmm. Like, I haven't seen gumbo on the internet. In really, and again, that might just be because my, my Instagram feed is radicalizing me to only look at subcarving. But, like, I haven't seen gumbo in a long, you know, I haven't seen anybody make gumbo in a long time.
3: I feel like there are ways around that. There are a lot of shots that are, like, like after you eat the gumbo and it's all gone or like the clean plate (laughs) or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, then why do we watch these top down recipe videos? I mean, I mean, okay. What I really don't, I don't use Facebook. I hate Facebook, Yeah. but when I do go on, there are all these people that like share videos of Oreo cake pops. And for real. Yeah. And so like, what is the point? Who is like, no one's making them. Right. And how are we meant to consume these things? And so what's the point of, making these videos or sharing these videos? Like, is it more so defining the aesthetic of BuzzFeed? Or, like, what was the purpose?
4: It's really hard. Like, right, every time Facebook changes their algorithm of what they find to be a valuable social interaction, and they actually have, like, a name for it. It's, like, meaningful social interactions, like MSIs. Hmm. It's really, like, it's as if you ask robots to describe how humans interact with each other and, like, quantify it. That's what it looks like, right? It's literally, like, you asked a room full of robots to be, like, this is how humans talk. Um, And so, essentially, like, media organizations frequently if they are if they've made the executive decision to respond to Facebook's asks of them they are looking for whatever it is that Facebook wants from them and frequently right now what that is I mean like six months ago it was like Facebook wanted um, people to be tagging their friends inside the comments of a thing so like let's say you make some like Oreo cake pop right and you're and or you see an Oreo cake pop and you're like oh my friend so and so loves that and you tag them in it right so cool that's that's an MSI, or it was an MSI six months ago. Now my understanding is that MSIs are like your friends need to have, or people who know each other need to have conversations in the comments of a story like that, of a of like in a piece of content, in order for that content to be like ranked highly on the MSI scale. Mm-hmm. So like, so let's say you post those Oreo cake pops and or somebody posts Oreo cake pops and I comment to my friend hey you know you would really like this and she responds back like oh no absolutely not that's disgusting that counts as an MSI even though it's like you know right because we know each other and we're engaging in the comments of somebody else's post that gets that post props that gets that post later like heavier weight in the algorithm Right, so like, so much of this is, um, it's hard to say that it's coming from food media or it's a statement on food media as a, as a whole. It's how aggressively are the organizations choosing to participate in whatever new algorithm it is that day. Hmm. Um, which is, yeah, I mean, so it's not really necessarily an indictment on food media or, or media consumption at all. It's really, it's it's how the robots decided they were going to weight human interaction. Right, so. Uh-
3: So, how as so like as someone working in food media, when you are scrolling through your feed and there are so many things that you just scroll past, how how do you feel about that? I mean, I feel like there's when I scroll past something, I unfollow because I just feel like it's trash. It's clutter. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you? How is, I don't know, what is the intended audience for stuff like that? I don't
4: use a lot of Facebook either, honestly. Like, I use a lot of Twitter, but I don't use a lot of Facebook. And I was thinking about my Instagram, too, where I follow all of these companies that I don't really care about. Like, I follow, you know, but I want to know if, so, you know, we're at Roberta's, if Roberta's having, there's a, I don't know if you guys can hear it on the radio outside, but there's <laughs> a very loud party happening outside. And I found out about it from my Instagram feed that told me that Tiki Disco which is the party that they both thought that we were lying about and we tried to get into here to <laughs> record the video, record the, 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 the radio show, uh, was happening, right? But like most of the time I don't need to follow Roberta's. Like it's far from my house. I'm never going to like make it in for like a, you know, Tuesday night special or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I follow Roberta's. And is that clutter? Maybe? Kind of? Like do I need to unfollow Roberta's? Like, I don't know. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Like, yes, I, there, there's a lot of clutter. There's a ton of clutter and how do you sift through that? I, don't, I have no idea. I don't have an answer.
3: And we are people that care about food. you know? Yes. And so when people who don't care about food have all this stuff in their feed, why should they care about food media in general?
4: Well, it's so interesting, right? Because, like, I mean, I'm old. Um, when I got into food media, it wasn't a thing. Like, I mean, it, like people existed. It was, like, a couple guys who had done PhDs at Harvard and were kind of dilettantes uh, writing about food as intellectuals. And they'd write in traditionally male publications. Um or traditional basically traditionally establishment publications one was in the Wall Street Journal and the other was in Vogue um, and that was pretty much it so when I went to culinary school um, people would ask me where I'd been before that and I'd say Yale and frequently people thought I said jail. like really like <laughs> more than more than many more times than you would expect right so I got into this field really early before like it was really a field as such right like it was not a thing people didn't really do this um, in many cases I was the first person to have the job that I had um And so there's that too. Um, And so watching food change over the years, watching food food go from being a thing that people eat for sustenance to being a staple of cultural capital, like all the same boring guys that used to corner me at parties to talk about Indie Rock, now corner me at parties to talk about chefs. It's exactly the same. I mean, it's the same demographic. They're just talking about a different thing. And it's super interesting to watch because in certain parts of the world where we have munchies, food hasn't made that leap yet. Right, and so um, I grew up partially in Germany, and so uh, you know we have a German language team. they used to be running out of Berlin, and now they're running out of Zurich. And um, it's super interesting because it's really hard to make people care about food when it's not part of the cultural conversation necessarily, right? So, like, even in Berlin, all of my coolest friends they don't get, they don't get the slightest fuck about about restaurants or chefs. They all even the the coolest people I know in Berlin. Um, Tastemakers, culture setters, like all of those people, they will eat the same sort of vegetarian casserole and then go get drunk at the art gallery. Hmm. Right. Like, but they're not. I mean, that's they, they eat the same. Everyone eats the same, like, give like vegetable right. casserole. And it's just not part of the culture. And so what are the stories that you tell that? What are the stories that work in Germany? And the stories that have worked in Germany, is, for example, are this woman from the former East who makes, um like, essentially sandwiches that she goes around and sells to the men of the brothels in in Berlin and like she's like her name is literally like cold cut like Mutti, like cold cut mom like (laughs) like, you know like and so like right like it's like it's like some it's yeah she's like she's like sandwich mama and so and like you know she's like a working class woman who goes around at 2 a.m. and sells um sandwiches to the prostitutes and the patrons and the drunk people in the at the bars who are gentrifying that neighborhood, right? Like, stories like that do really well, because there's still stories, there's stories about people, right? But if we did a story about, like, Tim Raue who's, like, the, you know, Michelin star chef at this fancy uh, fish restaurant in Berlin, like, eh, nobody cares. Right. You know, like, and so how do you, whose who story are you telling? And how do you tell a story? Like, is Shepin Muti, like, is she, is she a food story? Kind of? Yes, I mean, she is a food story, right? Like, she's totally a food story. She's selling sandwiches at 2 a.m. to, like, prostitutes. Mm -hmm. Like, fully 100% a food story, but, like, you know, uh, what does that food story tell you about about, about Berlin?
3: Right, so do you think it'll be kind of, like, a slow process and that it'll just be a ton of these kind of sandwich mama stories and finally people will start to realize that there is value to food media or is it just kind of, like, a culturally different thing? People will never get it in the way that we watch cake pop videos
4: maybe it's really hard to say I mean like I got into food in the first place when I was living in Germany and noticed that um, I mean I was like 16 years old I got the scholarship in the state department to finish high school in Germany and so I was living there and started noticing which of my friends what snacks they ate and how deeply tied it was to like class and, and it was before the EU and so like You know, currywurst, which you think about as this classic German thing, nobody ate that. I went to a gymnasium, which is like the schools are tiered, and gymnasium is like the top tier of the people who are going to go to college. Um, Nobody eats currywurst. Nobody eats currywurst because like that's that's not a thing people eat, right? And if you ate like, and if you most most people, if they wanted a snack, they would get a dinner, which is like sort of the middle to upper middle class snack, right? Like, which is like, came from Turkish immigrants, Turkish guest workers, um, and is now basically as German a food as any other. Um, and then if you, and again, this is pre-EU, so this is probably has changed significantly. This is, you're talking about almost you know, 20 years ago now. Um, but if you liked falafel, because there weren't really Arab immigrants in Turkey, at the, in Germany at the time. So if you liked falafel, then it meant that you had been to Paris and you'd been to the like places where they had Arab immigrants. And you'd been specifically actually to the falafel stand that like Lenny Kravitz liked, right? Like there's a falafel stand in Paris that Lenny Kravitz like this has this picture on. And like, if you liked falafel, it meant you were wealthy enough to have gone to Paris to a place with Arab immigrants, right? But it was super tiered. And I noticed that when I was like 16 and I was like, oh, this is really interesting. So I'm from New York. Like everybody eats the same things here. I mean, kind of. In my experience, like, everybody eats dollar slices, and everybody eats, like, you know, when you're six, 16 in New York, like, everybody, you know, eats dumplings in Chinatown, and every, you know, like, you're a kid, you eat all the same foods as your friends. You know what I mean? Like
3: Yeah, and I feel like that the way that translates to today is um, people posting photos of where they went to eat when they travel, and yes. not necessarily eating it. Um, yes for like so yeah people who do not live in Brooklyn and come to Roberta's and take a picture of the pizza and,
4: right yeah and I don't know if it's actually if, if and maybe when I was 16 and lived in New York maybe my perspective was, was narrow but there were some foods that everybody ate everybody eats beef patties everybody eats garlic knots everybody eats dollar slices everybody you know what I mean like um, and whereas there it was like some people eat dinner and some people eat curvy and some people eat falafel like and it was very it was much more split out than I expected it to be um, and that's what struck me and that's what sort of got me interested in food in the first place mm-hmm.
3: So when you saw a friend eating falafel, was that kind of... Was that intriguing? And to, like, Did you want to learn more about that culture? Or was it just kind of... It rested at the like economic...
4: Well, yeah. Question. I mean, for us, it was like... Yeah, because people... I mean, I grew up eating falafel at Moon's on McDougal because we would right. go to the comedy cellar because they would serve us underage, you know, like and then go get falafel. Like, mm-hmm. So, like, the falafel is just a completely normal food to me because, like, you know, right. like... And so... Um, yeah, I don't know. Like, and so when people would be like, "Oh, falafel," I've never. Oh, if you have falafel, I've had it in Paris. Mm. Like, oh, huh, okay, right. You know, because if you're from New York, you don't realize that New York is different than the rest of the world. Right. You have no idea that everyone isn't going to a moons after going to the comedy cellar am like, you know what I mean? Like, you know. Yeah. I mean, everyone will serve you when you're when you're 16 in Germany. It's not like a thing. You know, like so there isn't a specific place that will serve you underage because there's no underage. And so. like... <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. So was, that was one of those things that I noticed when I was young and then like didn't really pay attention to. And then like started paying more attention to like just sort of, um, culture and class and, f- and palate and, and what people liked. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has always been sort of a thing that I've cared about. And again, it's like how, who you are affects what you eat and how, who, what you eat affects who you are. It's like, those are the two things I mean, I'm still doing it.
3: Mm-hmm. And so to wrap up, what kind of changes do you forecast for food media in style in focus? Um, yeah.
4: I don't know I mean it's been so interesting to see so many people so many legacy publications like really understand that like I mean maybe not really understand but kind of understand almost understand that like you can't keep going this way right like right now so I'm the only woman of color editor-in-chief in the food world and I'm the second ever um, and so there are not that many assigning editors of color I think there's four of us and we're all friends and we all text you know like <laughs> um, and uh, you know so like that's really interesting because it's really interesting whose stories are getting told and who's get being given the voice to tell the stories. Um, but it's also re- really, really interesting to watch other publications run stories that are very, very clearly munchy stories. You know, like this is a story that you would never have run six months ago, but now you're running it. And that's really cool. And I'm really glad to see it. I mean, I'm definitely of the mindset that like a rising tide helps all boats. And so like, I'm super happy if it gets more, more shine in the people that I care about. That's dope. I'm super here for that. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think that the younger generation is not interested in, as much in, like, hearing the same stories be told and watching the same deification of the same people. And I think a lot of people are very disheartened by sort of everything that's happened in the food world and how disappointing so many of their heroes have been. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. I mean, in, in my ideal world, there's just there's, – there's so much – there's more storytelling, um, more voices, more perspectives – more delicious food. Hopefully. Yeah, hopefully. More soap carving. More cake videos. Yeah, more cake
3: videos. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. This has been Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network.
2: Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you.